Yes, Venture, welcome to week two of this journey home that we are all on. I appreciate what Joy, well, several things that she said just there, just now, but the phrase she used, this is good work and it's hard work. Those two things together are very appropriate to say. I believe that to be true. By the way, way to go. So I'm hearing feedback from small groups, and I know that some of you, you're leaning into this, and you're, I love this. Some of you are leaning into it, and you're saying, I don't know, this, I'm, I'm wrestling with some stuff here. This is good, and it's hard work. By the way, can I just make this statement? Way to go. You're in the upper echelon here. Stop and think about this. How many adults after high school, maybe college, lean into some inward growth work, voluntarily say, hey, I want to be a part of this. I want to do this. I'm coming to weekend services and I'm being challenged. Then I'm going into a small group and I'm discussing and there's some work clearly to be done here in my inner life. Way to go. Lean in all six weeks and just see, see what God does in you. Joy was just transparent. She talked about a perm that she did not have there with her mama. I love that photo. Uh, Again, through a lens of transparency, can I just point out yours truly? If you have your journey home guide, go ahead and grab that right now. Open it up. You're going to be taking notes today, sermon notes. I think it's on page 30. Yep, 30 and 31. But if you right now would scoot all the way to the front of the book, I believe it's page 2. That's me. I look at that photo. By the way, I'm the little guy, two from the left, doing my best Orville Redenbacher impersonation there. Bow tie, I think, plaid, jacket. That's not a perm. That's uh, 1978, probably teased up hair. That's an afro, friends. I don't know as I look at that picture if, oh, if I want to pinch that kid's cheeks. Maybe I want to give him a hug. Buddy, you're going to live some life between that moment and this moment today. Or maybe I just want to put a sticky note on his back that says, kick me and just mess with him. Because he looks kind of nerdy in that picture, doesn't he? As I mentioned last week, uh, week one was all about home. It was about the promise of home. Like, we're aiming somewhere, right? It's not a journey from home. This is a journey to home. We're going somewhere, and that takes some work along the way as we make that journey toward home. So uh, this is a six-week process. I wanted to encourage you with that upper echelon speech. Let me remind you, as Joy just did, there is some personal work to be done. So your challenge turns out, when I met with my small group this past week, turns out I'm a bit of a control freak. My challenge this week is to delegate one task. Uh, And so I'm rustling through that one. You need to be doing that as well. Just remind you, you want to have that task done before you show up to your small group, you've got some time to do that, even if your group still meets today. By the way, week four of this journey, you don't want to miss it. As you're doing this good work right now, week four, we're going to be doing what we're calling a prayer experience that is essential for the hard work that you're putting in right now, what you're doing personally, what you're doing in your groups. You don't want to be uh, missing that, so keep that kind of on your radar. You'll hear more about that as we get closer to the month of October. Okay, so this weekend, 
As we continue in this journey, this weekend is all about authority. This week, we're asking the question, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about him? How is your identity of him shaped by your beliefs? And this is what I want to walk out today knowing, that our orphan behavior sometimes, many times, is rooted in a tainted view of who God is. His real identity has been messed with, and we've bought it, and it's hurting our spiritual life. The title of today's message, what we're engaging in our small groups with this week is this idea, know your dad. Know your dad. We're asking the question, what do you think that God is like? You know, Today we're going to talk about some dad stuff, and for good reason, the image of God as father is all through the Bible. It's not always about dad, though. It's not always father is the metaphor for God. Uh, so don't, don't confine God to a gender. We're confined to a gender, but God is other. We're human. He's the creator. Actually, there are places in Scripture that lean into more of a feminine side, more of a nurturing side of our God. Like, for example, you could go to Isaiah 49 and see there that uh, the text speaks of God caring for her, his kids like a mama cares for her babies, breastfeeding them, nurturing them. That's what the text talks about there, and it's talking about our God. So don't confine God to a gender. God doesn't have a gender. However, the Bible most often speaks about him as father. And for some of us, we read that and we resonate with that because for some of us, are any of you watching the Ted Lasso series right now on Apple Plus? I have been binge watching that. I'm kind of loving that series. It's got some language be forewarned, but oh my goodness, you talk about leadership principles. I've been, as, every time I watch it, I think, oh my goodness, there is a paper that could be written here about leadership, Ted Lasso. And each time I watch it, I think, I bet that character, I bet he's a good dad. It's like the perfect blend of encouraging coach and gentle disciplinarian. Some of you, when you hear about God as father, that's what you think of because that's who your dad here on earth was, maybe still is. And you look at that metaphor and you say, yeah, I'm all in. I get it. Some of us, though, in a room this uh, big, some of us, we unpacked some of our baggage this past week. For some of us, this is some of our baggage. We hear the word father, and it brings to mind images or experiences that, let's be honest, we, we would rather forget. Many of us hear the word father, and we think of words like, like workaholic or anger, maybe yelling, Maybe you think of impossible to please. Maybe you think of even darker words like, like abuse, violence, maybe even sexual sin. Regardless, if your dad, well, there's no such thing as a perfect father, not here on earth. We all have some work to do to redeem the image of God as father. I want to aim at that today because he is a good father. He's the perfect father. We see this illustrated in a moment in your New Testament Bible. I think that Jesus, Son of God, our Savior, in this moment, he's, he's fully God, he's fully man, but I think his humanity in this moment, I think he's having a really good day. I think it's a really good day, maybe his 
best day. We see this in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Check this out. When all the people were being baptized, some of us, that's our next step of faith. We make a decision to follow Jesus, make him Lord and Savior. We follow with baptism immediately. Well, Jesus models this. These people are gathered at the Jordan River and they're being baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus joins into that conversation as well. Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, this is a good day, right? He's talking with his heavenly father. It gets better. As he's praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Can you imagine that moment? It's a good day, but it gets better. There's a booming voice from heaven. I picture it kind of like the narrator in uh, the video we just watched. His name is Ben. He goes to our church. But a booming voice and a voice from heaven. You're my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Many of us, we're longing for that moment of affirmation. We want that kind of affirmation from our earthly father. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm pleased in you. There are other translations that translate this passage. You make me happy. You bring me pleasure. This is a good day for Jesus. Would you agree? I think this is the best day in Jesus' life. I think it's more thrilling than the moment he stands up and preaches in front of 5,000 people. I think it's more authenticating than any miracle he's ever worked. The words from his heavenly Father in you, I'm well pleased. I like you. You're my son. There's identity in that. Don't miss the timing of this, by the way. This baptism, this is actually at the beginning of his earthly ministry. This is the very beginning. Jesus hasn't taught the multitudes yet. He hasn't started his countercultural revolution yet. This pleasure from his Father, hear me, it wasn't merit-based. He hadn't earned this pleasure. Many of you, you're longing to hear that. You're longing to hear that affirmation from a mom or a dad or an authority figure. Listen, I'm well pleased. Well done, son. Daughter, I'm thankful for you. Do you have those moments in your memory bank? This past week, a week ago Friday actually, I went golfing with my dad and, and my two brothers. Here's a picture of us. This is me, of course, and my two brothers, and this is my dad right here. Dad had a surgery a couple of months ago, and uh, he, uh, it's a golf outing. It was like a, a fundraiser. One of my brothers is deeply invested in a ministry on the south side of Indy, and it's a cool after-school thing, and he was given a gift that's pushing that forward. This is a way to raise funds for that ministry, but really for us it became an opportunity just to hang out. And to be together. My dad lives three and a half hours away in central uh, Illinois. He had a surgery and he called and said, hey, listen, I don't think I can swing it or shouldn't be swinging a golf club. I'm still kind of recovering from that. But he drove three and a half hours just to come over and hang out with us. He drove the golf cart. I got to ride with him. I got to have him as my caddy, I guess. And I'm focusing on golfing, but he's, he's kind of focusing on me. About a week before that, we had taken a bit of a family vacation. We had gone to St. Louis, and the night before, we were there on Friday night. Saturday morning, he has a Bible study that he meets with a group of guys every week. And that Friday night, he had said, hey, I want you to come with me this uh, tomorrow morning. Would you do that? Yeah, that'd be great. So like 6, 6 a.m., we grab coffee, we go and we sit around in this room with a bunch of guys, and it was great. I, I was so glad that I, I chose to be a part of that. 
Well, we're golfing a week later, and he says, hey, you know what, one of the guys, his name is Gerald. He was one of those people that I looked up to when I was a kid in my home church growing up. He said, Gerald wouldn't stop talking about you. He just really was impressed with some of the things that you had to say. I can't tell you how affirming that felt. I could hear the pride in my dad's voice as it leaked out. Man, I'm 46 years old. I'm a father now of five myself. I'm kind of doing that myself, but I'm 46. I'm still chasing after dad's approval. I bet many of us can relate to that. Here's a true statement. Until you feel that God, our Heavenly Father, until you feel that God approves of you, you will never truly be at home. Until you feel that approval that God speaks down to Jesus, that moment of his baptism, until you feel that, you're not going to be at home. There's probably still some work to do here. You've heard the phrase, well, she or maybe he, they just have daddy issues. I think I heard this recently in the news talking about Britney Spears. You know what this means. Something in the childhood. They're missing some affirmation from father. And then chasing that affirmation all in the wrong directions. Here's the thing. I think that a lot of God's children have daddy issues. Approval is a big deal. So from this moment, this, this moment in the story, Jesus feels the affirmation from his heavenly father. And from there, he goes into the wilderness. He goes into the desert space. We know it as the Judean wilderness. I've been there. I've hiked around. It's kind of a dry, arid space. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he experiences an extreme fast. This is 40 days without food. Some of us could do that. 40 days without water, none of us could do that. This is kind of a miraculous thing. Actually, you could study uh, the number 40 in Scripture. 40 is a big thing. It happened with the flood. It happened with David and Goliath. It happened uh, with Moses getting the Ten Commandments. 40 happens all over Scripture. 40 days between Jesus' crucifixion and his ascension into heaven. We could do a whole study on the word for the number 40. But 40 days. Jesus leaves that moment of affirmation. He's out in the wilderness and he's tempted. The devil comes to him in the middle of this miraculous fast. I'm sure he's famished, and I'm sure he is thirsty. He's tempted. What is he tempted with? He's tempted with his core identity as a son. As a son that his father approves of. This is where the temptation occurs. Satan comes to him, and he tempts him when he's at his weakest. Let's go ahead and look at the text. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. He just said, right? God just parted heaven and spoke down, this is my son. I'm well pleased. I like him. I love him. I'm proud of him. It, the tempter, if you are the son of God. Well, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live on bread alone. What's the temptation here? Bread, right? Some of you who have dieted before, you know this temptation. This is the carbs, right? He's tempting, the devil is tempting Jesus with carbs. And this isn't that, like, walk down the grocery store aisle and that pre-sliced garbage that they call bread. No, 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 no. This is like sourdough. If Jesus is going to turn a rock into bread, this is the kind of, you know, you walk out of Panera three days later and you still smell like Panera, that kind of bread, 
right? This is the, you go to uh, Texas Roadhouse and you pass on the steak just so you can eat some more of those yeast rolls. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is about bread, right? I don't think it's just about bread. This is about Jesus' core identity. Remember, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. He's attacking his identity. It's a temptation of identity. It's a temptation of where you are at home. I'm going to share with you three identity temptations here, and they all attack our orphan tendencies. We talked about those last week, about our ability to feel at home. These are all identity issues. These three core temptations, they're aimed at Jesus, but I would suggest to you they're ours as well, and they keep us from feeling at home. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these three down. Here's the first one. It was bread, right? It really is about appetite. Let me ask this question. Why are two out of three Americans obese or overweight? As I say that, don't hear any shame. I'm not heaping shame. I wrestle with this as an adult. I have wrestled with overconsumption, with my appetite as an adult. I hit a page this last week and did a little bit of research. This is from the National Center for Health Statistics. 20, uh, adults age 20 and over, the percent that wrestle with obesity is 42.5%. This is a dated stat. This is the uh, 2017 and 2018. This is pre-COVID-20 or COVID-19 or however many uh, pounds we packed on. The percentage of adults, though, age 20 and over that wrestle with overweight, including obesity, is 73.6%. That's almost three out of four. I don't think my grandparents and yours would recognize that statistic. There's something going on, even inside of our culture here. I don't want to focus on the what, but rather let's poke just a little bit at the why. What's underneath that? I mean, this might be a discipline problem, sure. It might be our bad diet. It might be food deserts. It might be McDonald's and supersize me, sure, sure, and sure. But write this down. When you have an appetite, this is outside, external. When you have an appetite that's out of control, there's something inside that's out of order. The temptation here is appetite. And we're not just talking about food, right? I mean, we could talk about food. I mean, they call it comfort food for a reason, right? When you're sick, you want that dish that mom made or that grandma made, the biscuits and gravy or the chicken noodle soup. It's comfort food, right? There's something emotional going on there. What else do you have an appetite for that might be out of control? Alcohol? Do you have an appetite for more and more and you just can't get enough? Maybe, maybe you have an appetite for working out. You just can't get enough of the gym. You're hungry. It's filling something up inside of you. Maybe, maybe you have an appetite for success. You can't get enough gold stars next to your name. So you're always chasing the next promotion, the next set of accolades. Maybe, maybe you have an appetite for caffeine. Ouch, I, I wrestle with that one myself. Maybe you have an appetite for knowledge. You're just chasing more and better degrees. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And by golly, people like me. Maybe you have an appetite for adventure. You're always chasing some more adrenaline. I I sat around with some of our elder team on Friday night around a campfire, and we were swapping stories, and I told them about a time that Don and I went skydiving. 
The guy that was strapped to my back the whole way up before we jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, he just kept, like he was an adrenaline junkie, I could just tell. This is what he kept saying, and I quote, if there's not a chance of death, then it's not fun for me. Do you think there might be an appetite issue right there? How about an appetite for social media or TikTok? Or I don't know, maybe even your emails, whatever it is that you use this device to get at compulsively. Could you go two months without this? Could you go two weeks without this? Two days? Two hours? Or do you keep it in your pocket even while you're preaching? This past week, I was listening to a podcast that was talking about compulsions. And it was talking about these devices. And it was comparing our addiction to them, to heroin, to porn addictions, to things that we would agree have just this massive control over our lives. And it was, it was making a pretty equal sign comparison there, saying these things have a control over our world. This was on my way to a lunch appointment. And the lunch appointment said, hey, I, I want to go into the Apple store. Let's meet down there, and, and I'll pop in there before or after we eat. And I said, you know what, I'd love to join you. Why? Because it's the Apple store. I walk in. I snapped a photo. One of the employees told me, hey, today's the day they make the big announcement about the whole new fall product lineup. And I watched the store as a bunch of employees looking like zombies just watched this, what's new? Go ahead and hook it straight up into my vein. I need this. There's an appetite issue at play here, right? I wrestle with this too. People have for a long time. This is not new to humankind. Actually, there's a guy named Blaise Pascal. He's a handsome-looking devil right here. This is what he said, oh, a couple hundred years ago. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? Garden of Eden. Paradise lost, right? Once upon a time, we were designed to walk in the garden with God in the cool of the day. Sin enters the picture. We have orphan tendencies. We talked about this last week that we're always trying to get back to that space that we were designed for. Of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with a, an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. He was famously quoted that there's a God-shaped hole. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. And every woman, and no matter how much we try, whether it be food or alcohol or sex or success, it will not fill the God-shaped vacuum. Hear me. When you find your identity in God's approval. Not, not the chasing after the wind that Solomon talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes, but when you find your identity in God's approval, you've come to a place called home. The evil one doesn't win that first interchange, the first temptation, so he hits Jesus again. Luke chapter 4, let's keep reading. The devil took him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. In my opinion, you could take him up on top of Mount Hermon in the middle of the Holy Land. And all he had to do to show him the kingdoms of the world is point to the international highway, where for, oh, a thousand plus years now, all the ancient empires had marched their armies up and down that highway to conquer, conquer another empire. 
And the devil is saying, I can give you that. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me. That's a lie. And I can give it to anyone I want to, so if you worship me, it will all be yours. This is a lie. It's already his. He's God. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is the temptation of ambition. Can you see it underneath that? This is a temptation, an orphan temptation for us. Not only do we wrestle with appetite, we also wrestle with ambition. These are the three ways I'm going to share with you that we anesthetize not feeling at home. Like this one, we don't take time to celebrate. We're always conquering, always looking to take the next hill. Some of you here in Hamilton County, you get this, you're a type A. Ambition is an orphan temptation. It can look like the accrual of of wealth. It can look like ambition in degrees. It can look like mindlessly climbing in the business world. Our only long-term goal is, quote, getting ahead. It could be an endless comparison to others. Has there ever been enough for you? Does that ever get satisfied? One of the ways to test these things in your life is to see if you could go without that thing, to take it away for a week. Could you take away alcohol and live with it without it for a week? What about food? Your iPhone. Could you live without it for a week? Is there anything in your life that you would struggle to go seven days without? This might be an appetite issue. It might be an ambition issue. And that thing's not bad, but maybe you've bought into the lie that this thing, well, this is what it can do for me. It can give me approval. This is what God is designed to bring to your life. And that thing, that substance, that activity, it's a lie. God is the answer. Not that thing. Jesus' temptation here was about replacing what only God could do for him with a less than substitute. Another attempt at identity temptation. Let's keep reading. Luke chapter 4. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament. He, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Satan is quoting scripture. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered. It says, he he responds back to Satan, who's quoting Scripture. He responds with Scripture himself. Might that be a lesson for us? He says, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Wouldn't that be a power trip? The devil is saying, all you have to do is throw yourself off. Have you ever been bungee jumping? And the cord arrests you right before you smash off of terra firma. (laughs) He's saying angels will do this for you. Wouldn't that be a power trip? God must really value me. God must really need me that he wouldn't allow me to hit the ground and die, but he'd send these angels to scoop me up. What's the devil doing here? This is a temptation. We've talked about appetite, and we've talked about ambition. This is a temptation of approval. When you're constantly seeking this, every decision is made through the eyes of whether so-and-so will think I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, that people like me. Some of us, we're in careers right now, and we're, we're, we're in those careers really because we're still seeking our parents' approval. Some of us are in the opposite career, not the one that they wanted you to do because of what your parents might think. You're, you're kind of going after anti-approval. 
There was a guy in Florida a few years ago who died, I think, seeking approval. He died from eating cockroaches and um, like super worms. It was like this, this, this contest of the local reptile store had put on. His t-shirt, I think, is interesting. Veritas Aquinas. I believe this is Latin for truth and justice. What compels somebody who's the life of the party, by the way, he had a friend stand up and talk about him as his, at his funeral. He said, quote, this goes out to one of the most funnest, craziest, and most energetic people I've ever met. I will never forget you, Eddie. I don't think anybody could. What compels a guy who would be described like that to eat bugs until he dies? I don't know. What compels a college fraternity on a Friday night? to engage in some of that risky behavior? What is it that would make somebody drink and puke themselves silly, all to get the approval of people that they won't spend any time with in five years? What drives that? We don't feel God's approval, so we, we seek it elsewhere. This is why it feels tragic when you lose your job because you've lost your sense of identity and your sense of approval. There's deeper stuff to wrestle with here. When we get a picture of who God is, he says, in you, in you, I find pleasure. And this story of Jesus in person, this specific temptation from Satan embodied, it's bad, but his worst days are yet to come. He went from the best of days to a temptation season, but his worst days, think the cross of Christ, his worst days are yet to come. By the way, that's probably true for you as well. Your worst days are yet to come. How's that for getting out of bed and brushing your teeth to come to church and have the preacher say that to you? That's not what I'm supposed to say, right? I'm supposed to say your best days are yet to come. And they might be. I actually believe that's true, that your best days are yet to come, but it's entirely possible. Your worst days are in front of you as well. And what are you going to do? What gets you through those worst days? Well, it's what got Jesus through his worst days, his identity, his identity as a son who is favored by God. Jesus retells this truth, this story. He calls it the prodigal son. Actually, it's better known, we probably should call it the man who has two sons. We focus on one of them to the exclusion of the other. I'm going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks but I want to tease this out a little bit right now because I think there's some great conversations to be having in our small groups surrounding this story and what it teaches us about the identity of our Father in heaven. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. See, it's right there in the first line. We should call this the story of the man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. He's coming to his dad and he's saying, I wish you were dead to me. Just give me my money now. He's a loving father. He agrees. So the father divided his property between them. The father in this story, by the way, represents God. And there's two sons. One is visibly rebellious. We see that. And he runs away. The other one is internally rebellious. And what does he do? Well, he sticks around. Ancient culture. Just give me my money right now. I'd rather have my money than have you. This would have been a profound insult. This would have been saying, I'd rather you be dead to me. Hear me. If we think like orphans, 
And if we're honest and if we're in touch with ourselves, don't some of us have this same tendency? I'd rather have the gifts of God than the face of God. I'd rather have the hand of God than the identity of God. I want the blessings, but I'm not sure I want the relationship. Some of us were the younger brother in this story. This was common then, it's common now. This is what the son does. He runs away. He takes his money and blows it on wine and women and song and prostitutes. He's drinking hard. He's living for himself. This might be an appetite issue. It might be an ambition issue. It might be an approval issue. He blows his money. He finds himself at the lowest of lows. He finds himself, Jewish culture, this is a big deal. He's feeding pigs. For a Jew, this is an unkosher profession. And it symbolizes his complete retreat from his religion. It symbolizes his complete retreat from home. He's feeding pigs. He comes to his senses. Let's keep reading. He says to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. He doesn't believe that he's a child of the father anymore. Can you see that? He's assumed the identity of of an orphan. We talked about this last week. My dad does not want to see me. He has no warm affection toward me at all. Every once in a while, I wish I didn't know the Bible. Every once in a while, I wish I could read a story like this for the first time. Some of you, you're jumping ahead right now because you know the ending of this story. But could you just take a moment and sit in the reality of this story? I think in the moment, Jesus' original audience would have been leaning forward. How's this story going to end? We think we know how it's going to go. Because it, how it would play out. This is an orphan. He's violated his dad. But he feels his brokenness and he makes his way back to his dad. We know him as God. It says this. He got up, went to his father. But while, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Plot twist, Right? The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. But wait, there's more. Put a ring on his finger. There's more. Put a sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to party. They began to celebrate. Grab the signet ring. Grab the robe. This represents royalty. Grab some shoes. The boy needs some shoes on his feet. Grab the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. Is this the picture of God that you have? You leave. And then you return, and he celebrates you. If you're struggling with orphan tendencies, you need to know your dad. You have an identity problem with God. There's this God of the Old Testament. I'm tired of people talking about how bad God is in the Old Testament. And was this like his JV days before varsity he gets called up? Uh-uh. The story of the Old Testament is God pursuing the children that he loves. Sure, he disciplines them sometimes, but oh my goodness, he goes after them. For example, we read in the book of Hosea. A story about a prophet who God says, I want you to marry a prostitute. She's going to, be a, she's going to cheat on you. But I want the people to see that I don't leave. 
that I pursue them just like you're going to pursue your unfaithful wife. Hosea chapter 2, verse 13, she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I'm now going to, I love this word, I'm going to allure her. The text goes on and says, I'll lead her into the desert, that dry space, the same area where Jesus was tempted. And I'm going to speak tenderly to her because I love her, because I'm pursuing her, because I have a tender heart of a father, younger son. In the story, his mind is blown. He's taken on the identity of an orphan, and orphans don't simply receive stuff. You have to work for it, but God says, you're coming back in. You're right back in my good graces. Meanwhile, the older brother says, you're back? What's going on? We read this. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Pay attention to that word, slaving. Melodramatic much? Yet you never gave me even a young goat. Sounds kind of whiny, doesn't it? So that I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, boy, that's strong language. Not my brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You killed a fattened calf for him. By the way, this looks like the faithful son, right? But he's not faithful in an identity of being home with dad. Can you see that they're both gone? The younger son, well, he was physically gone. The older son, he's emotionally gone, slaving. This son of yours. Both of these sons are spiritually gone because both of these sons have a bad picture of who dad is. They don't see the identity of their loving father who wants to give approval. The younger son, he thinks his actions make him unworthy. The older son, he thinks his actions actually make him worthy. They're both wrong. I hope you're starting to realize that all of us, broadly speaking, fit into the category of one of these sons. The younger son is relativistic. He thinks that what he does impacts the love of the father. The older son is moralistic. He thinks that what he does impacts the love of the father. Neither of them are realistic to the heart and the character of God. The younger brother, he's at home, uh, and he's viewing his home before he takes off as a holding station just until he can leave. And then once he's back, well, I'm trying to work off my debt from before. The older brother, his, he's viewing home as a job if I'm just faithful enough. This is the way I keep God on my side, by my spiritual ambition. We're going to dive deeper into this story in a couple of weeks, but I wanted to look at the identity of the father because it's worth chewing on. It's worth thinking about. It's worth discussing in your small groups. Hear me. God is not impressed by what you do. He loves you because you're his. He loves you because he loves you. I love this passage in Psalm 149. For the Lord takes delight in his people. You're my son. I'm well pleased. I'm proud. I love you. I like you. He adorns the humble with salvation. Your father takes pleasure in you. In you, I am well pleased. He spoke it over Jesus, but I think he would desire to speak that over you as well. 
And when you get that straight, you're on your way home. I'm going to invite our worship team to come out right now. They're going to lead us in a time of worship by response. As they do that, I want to tee up a moment. Would you grab your guide? That's our staff member, Shaley, right there on page, uh, or the week two, the beginning of that. But if you flip that over to page 28. Page 28. And I'm going to invite you, please, grab that out, pull it out right now. This is important work. I want you walking out chewing on this today because I think God would continue to do something in your heart and in your mind even as you leave this space. So grab a pen, grab your journal, and right now, look at this, part one. It says the instructions are, list three or four descriptions of your dad, your earthly father. If you don't have one, then the person that raised you. Just top of mind. First things that come to mind, don't overthink this. Just write them down. For example, he was my biggest fan. Or maybe he was totally absent. Or maybe he was a hard worker. Or maybe he was or still is verbally abusive. You just write down what first comes to mind. Go ahead, do that. While you're doing that, the second part of this is to look back on your part one list. And because of that person's characteristics, this is how I reacted. So, for example, if he was my biggest fan, here's how I reacted. I'm always looking to him for approval. You see what's going on here? You're doing just a little bit of introspection. You're taking that just a little bit deeper. And I would invite you right now, where you're sitting, go ahead and do that. Just write down those things that come to mind. And then part three. Oh, we start to go deeper. How might your relationship with that person influence your relationship with authority figures that are in your life today? How do you react to your boss? Write some things down there. And I'm teeing this up. And I want to encourage you to do this hard work. Once you leave this space, sometime between now and the moment you sit down with your small group, grab a, a quiet space somewhere and continue to do this work. Because this question goes even deeper. Based on that answer, how do you view God? Is it possible that you've been walking around with a false identity of who God is and it's been shaped not by Him, but by somebody else's shortcomings, or at least how you perceive them in your life. I'm going to invite you to take this and to do this work. This is the beginning. We don't put a period on the end, at the end of the sentence right now. We're going to do this work for a while even as we leave. But I want to pray over this good. What did we say earlier? It's hard and good work. I want to pray over that right now, and then we're going to respond by worshiping our God, whose identity is secure because he is a good father. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for stories like the, the story of two sons. I thank you that you're a good God. And I thank you that there is good and hard work to do here as we wrestle with the identity of our Father, our Heavenly Father. So Lord, right now I know that there, there, there's emotional stuff that's being felt right now. But Lord, we declare truth. And as we respond in worship, we, we simply say, this is who you are. 
we love you. And it's in your name and Jesus' name we pray. Amen.